I hope you all had a wonderful, delightful Thanksgiving. Um, I hope you ate too much and went into a turkey and mashed potatoes coma afterwards and uh, just had a great time uh, with family and friends. I know we did. Um, We had both my parents here and Bethany's parents. uh, They live in town, but both both of our parents came over and uh, we just had a wonderful time. Thanksgiving is a great holiday uh, in large part because it's centered around a feast, literally. I mean, the whole point of the day is to make a lot of food and then to consume all of that food or as much as is possible to consume that food. Uh, It really is focused on, on a meal. Um, and people always make jokes about, you know, uh, oh, I'm going to gain all this weight. I'm going to eat too much on Thanksgiving, but, um, maybe I should have told, but that's okay that you do that on Thanksgiving. Uh, it's actually a, a really good and a Christian thing to do to have a feast together. Um, Christians throughout history, throughout church history have celebrated feasts together on, on regular occasions. Uh, It's a very normal part of the Christian life, and it's important. I'm not making that up. A feast is important for a believer. It's an important moment for us because when we have an abundance of food on one occasion and we sit down and we enjoy that together with friends and family, with other believers, what we're doing by that is we're celebrating the abundant provision that God provides for us. And he is that type of God, right? I mean, he doesn't just give us barely enough to eke out an existence and just enough to survive. That's not who he is. And so we need to remind ourselves of that from time to time and say, the God we serve is extravagant in what he gives. And we demonstrate that by having a feast together and by enjoying that. And so that's what we did on Thanksgiving. But this morning, even when you aren't celebrating a feast, which you probably shouldn't do every day. (laughs) Wouldn't be healthy to do that. But even when you're sitting down with your lunch this week, and when you're eating a bologna sandwich in your lunch break, you are having a moment that provides sustenance and nourishment for your ongoing life. And even that moment reflects the grace and the kindness of God in providing for your every need. And so there's the, the times of feasting where we, we reflect the abundance that the Lord gives. And then there's the meals that you just don't remember that you eat every single day that provide for your life to continue, even like a bologna sandwich. And even in those moments, you're reflecting something about the goodness and the character of God. God provides for our physical needs Every single day through the food that we eat. And it's not accidental at all that Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And it's not accidental that one of the two ordinances that we partake of together, we experience together as the church body, is the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate next week, which involves eating together. And what we're doing as we take the Lord's Supper is we're showing that God provides for our needs daily. And he provides for our physical and our spiritual needs. And we're showing that Jesus is himself the nourishment that we need every single day that sustains our lives. I was reading a little bit about feasting and about eating this week, appropriately enough. And I read this quote and I thought it was very, very helpful. Christ is our bread and gives us bread. He is the gift and the giver. 
God gives us every meal we eat, and every meal we eat is ultimately partial and inadequate, pointing to him who is our true food, our eternal nourishment. And so when you're eating, you're pointing to something beyond the physical taking of that food, to Christ as the one who ultimately provides for you both physically and spiritually. And that's what we're going to see this morning. And this morning is a wonderful passage because this fuses together two of the most profound images of our Savior that we have in Scripture. It doesn't say Christ is the bread of life, but it definitely points toward Jesus being the one that provides bread for our existence. But we do get the image here of Christ being the shepherd over his sheep. And it brings, this passage brings both of those images together in a beautiful way that presents Christ as the shepherd who provides for every need that we have. So if you're not there, open to Mark chapter 6. We're going to continue in our study of Mark this morning. Mark chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 31 to 44. And as And we're going to be looking at Christ as our shepherd. So today, we're going to see three ways that Jesus demonstrates that he is the good shepherd worthy to be followed. So three ways that Jesus demonstrates that he is the good shepherd worthy to be followed. All right? The first one of those is in verses 31 to 34. And it's that he sees the problem. He sees the problem. So if you were with us last time, you remember... The disciples went out on this mission for Jesus, and in the middle of that was the passage about John the Baptist, and we talked about the danger of discipleship. But then in verse 30, if you look down there, the disciples return from their mission that they've been out on in groups of two. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So... We've talked a lot about the way Christ is training his disciples and preparing them to do ministry for him after he dies and rises from the dead and ascends to the Father. And so after they come back and they begin telling him about what has happened on this, he is planning to take them on a little retreat. And I'm sure they're going to recap what they've done and learn from it and spend some time with him in conversation and fellowship. And so that's exactly what he tries to do. Look at verse 31. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now this is what Jesus does after they come back from their mission. And last week, We talked a lot about going out on mission for the Lord. And we talked about having an impact in our community and our desire to do that in the coming year. But I think it's interesting here that the disciples go out on mission for Christ and they come back to him. And at that point, Jesus wants them to come away with him and to be in a very close and personal relationship and fellowship with him. And I think this is both sides of the coin here, and both of these are necessary. Being on mission for Christ is fueled by this close personal relationship with Christ. And that's what we learn, I think, from seeing both of these things happen here. We have to be out making disciples for him, working for him, but that is fueled by being close with him and spending time alone with him and in relationship with him. 
So we go out on mission for him, and that sends us back to him, and we spend time with him in in dependency on him and relationship with him, and that fuels and sends us back out on mission for him. I mean, you could think of both of these as a symbiotic relationship. They feed off of one another, and both are absolutely necessary for the life of a believer. When you are actively engaging in making disciples, sharing the gospel, and being on mission for Christ, the times of rest and communion with him are that much sweeter and that much better. That's how God intended it to be. But on the flip side, if our spiritual lives are only made up of one-on-one personal devotion with Christ, and we're never going out on mission for him and seeking to impact our community and our neighbors. If we're never doing that, if it's only one-sided, then even that personal relationship with him will suffer and it won't be what God intended it to be. We have to have both of these together. God has designed it so that we are out on mission for him, and we encounter him in personal communion and fellowship. That's the way our spiritual lives are intended to work. And as that is happening here with the disciples, Christ calls them aside to rest a while and be with him. As that's happening, they just can't get it going in the way that they want to. Look at verse 31 again. For many, right in the middle, were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. I mean, we know what a celebrity Jesus is at this time. So people are very interested in finding him and being near him, probably seeing him do a miracle. And so the disciples can't even get time alone with Christ here. And I think it's interesting in this passage, notice in verse 31, it says the disciples couldn't even get a chance to eat. And I think that's foreshadowing what's going to happen later in this passage that we'll see in a few moments. But for now... Jesus and the disciples are trying to find a place where they can spend time alone together to discuss and learn from their mission, and they can't do it. And as you read verses 31 and 32, you sort of get this sense of a very chaotic situation. People are coming and going. They're always uh, coming close to Christ and the disciples. They're seeking a miracle from him. People are in and out, and they're all over the place, and they can't even find time to eat it. You get this chaotic situation that is going on here. And so the disciples in Christ even try to get in a boat. Look at verse 32. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So they're trying to... Go where people can't follow them. They get in a boat. They're on the Sea of Galilee. They're trying to find a bit of wilderness, someplace where people aren't regularly congregating so they can spend time together. But even that doesn't work. Look at verse 33. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So the Sea of Galilee is not that big. People know generally where they're trying to go. And so they run around the lake and they start coming from all the little towns and villages around the lake to where they think Christ is going to land. And they're waiting for them when they pull up to the shore in the boat. Now, that would be frustrating to me. I'm trying to get some time to invest in the disciples and all these people keep pursuing us. Christ isn't frustrated. And this verse 34 is the key to this whole first 
way that he demonstrates he's the good shepherd. He sees the, the real issue. He sees the real problem. Look at verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is the exact same response that our Lord had to the leper all the way back in chapter one. He had compassion on him. What's going on here? Jesus feels pity. He looks out and sees this mass of people waiting for him. And he feels pity and compassion on the entire group of people who are waiting for him. In other words, he sees their plight. He sees what's happening in their lives. And he's moved by what has happened to them and what's going on with them. What's the plight of the people here? What is Christ moved by? Verse 34 again, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I mean, that's quite an image there. Sheep without a shepherd are in a terrible circumstance. They need someone to lead them and guide them and provide for them. And that's how Jesus perceives this giant crowd of people to be. The group here is without a leader. And they're scattered about. They're coming and going. They're all over the place. And they're looking for a leader. And they're looking for someone who can give them what they need. And they're looking wherever they can find it. Now, don't just skip over that image there of the people of Israel as a a flock of sheep and them in need of a, a shepherd. Don't skip over that. Because if you've read your Old Testament, you know that Israel is often described in the Old Testament as sheep. And God is described, or their leader, even their human leaders, are described as their shepherds. Think all the way back to when Israel was first formed, when Moses brought them out of Egypt, brought them into the wilderness there, and led them toward the promised land. Now, he did a great job in leading them. He sinned against the Lord, so he wasn't able to take them into the promised land. You remember that? And so right before they're getting ready to go into the promised land, Moses prays to God, and he begs that the Lord would provide a leader for his people to take them into the promised land. And listen to how Moses phrases this in Numbers 27. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord... The God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Throughout Israel's history, the nation had some good leaders like Moses, but they also had many bad leaders, didn't they? David was a tremendous leader in Israel, and he was a shepherd king over the people. And Israel prospered under David's leadership. But after David, his son Solomon began to struggle, began to pursue other gods. And after Solomon, the nation splits, and the people have tons of terrible kings all in a row. And it's a really difficult time for them. And even the religious leaders and the kings in Israel were taking advantage of God's people. And they were using and abusing them for their own purposes. And when we get to the prophets, God indicts the leadership of the nation of Israel. 
And he uses this very vivid metaphor to describe what had been happening in the nation of Israel and what their leaders had been doing. And I want you to turn to this one because I'm going to read quite a chunk of scripture here. But Ezekiel chapter 34 is where I want you to go. Ezekiel 34. Hold your place in Mark. We'll go back there. But look how God describes the leaders in Israel and look how he describes his people in Ezekiel 34. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. He's not talking about those who are actually watching over sheep. He's talking about the leaders. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Look at this. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. And look how God says this. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Now, what does God say he's going to do about this? Look down at verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they had been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I, will, I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Wow. You can't tell me this passage is not in the background in Mark chapter 6. As Jesus looks out and sees the people scattered as sheep with no shepherd. What does God promise in Ezekiel 34? God promises that he himself will come and will take up the mantle of the good shepherd. And he will overturn the evil shepherds and he will lead them himself. Now, if you think about in the Gospel of Mark, what have we already seen about those who have led in the nation of Israel? We've already seen the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders who are using and abusing the people. And we've already seen, we just saw Herod, who's a political leader in Israel, who is corrupt to the core, who even puts John the Baptist to death. And so this description here of the people of Israel as sheep without a shepherd is not accidental and Jesus is exactly who they need. He sees the real problem. He knows what is going on. And he knows they need guidance, provision, and ultimately they need salvation. And he is the one who will provide it. 
Notice what he does back in Mark 6 at the end of verse 34. And he began to teach them many things. Their lack of a leader means they need to grow in the good news of the king. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. And that's not all he'll do. Now, as all of this unfolds, as they come ashore and they see this multitude and Christ begins to teach them by the Sea of Galilee, he's going to take the opportunity to instruct his disciples as well. And they desperately need it. And this brings us to our second way that Jesus demonstrates he's the good shepherd. And this is a key to the story. He sees the problem. There is sheep with no shepherd. And then he sharpens our perspective. And he does this for the disciples here. So Jesus identifies the problem. He has compassion on this crowd of people. But the disciples are lacking in compassion And they're lacking in perspective. Look at verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. And here's their solution to this issue. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So keep in mind, they're out in the wilderness, a desolate place. It says a couple of times. There's a massive crowd of people. We'll learn in verse 44 that there's 5,000 men who were there. So this is a huge crowd of people that they're dealing with. It's late afternoon, starting to get into the evening to twilight. And the disciples start to realize that if we don't get these people something to eat, things are going to start to get ugly real quickly. And the disciples here, you can see, they obviously don't feel a sense of responsibility. They don't feel like shepherds here over the sheep at all. So Jesus takes this as an opportunity to teach the disciples. Look at the beginning of verse 37 here. But he answered them, you give them something to eat, which is just fantastic. Instead of agreeing with their plan and saying, that makes logical sense. You guys send them out to the villages. Let's wrap this thing up here. Jesus has felt compassion over this crowd of people. And he throws it right back on the disciples. And he tells them, okay, then you guys provide for them. You need to feel a sense of responsibility and the weight of the need here. Look how the disciples respond, the rest of verse 37. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? This would have been almost a year's worth of wages, right? A denarii is about a day's wage. So we're talking about over half of a year's worth of wages, maybe a little more than that. It's a massive amount of food that would need to be purchased to give this crowd one meal here. And instead of Recoiling at this, look what Jesus says in verse 38. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. So what's going on here? Why does Christ keep throwing this back on the disciples? Well, he's acting like a good shepherd because he's training his disciples. And he wants to teach them to see this group from his perspective and not their own. If they're going to represent him after he ascends to the Father, then they have to see people the way that Jesus sees people. 
followers of Christ mimic the compassion of the Savior for the crowds of people, for those who are outside of a relationship with him. And this is helpful for us. This is instructive for us. We have to see people the way that Jesus sees people. How do you think about those who are outside of the body of Christ? What comes to your mind when you consider those in the broader culture who don't know the Lord? How do you view your neighbors? Maybe the ones that aren't the best neighbors in the world, that you wish they would sell the house and someone else would move in. What about those at work? What about people that we even see in the media outside of the body of Christ in the broader culture? I think sometimes we tend to think of those who don't know Christ as the enemy. Many of you have seen the culture change in dramatic ways over the last 30 to 40 years. I mean, even just the last five years, we've seen incredible shifts in the culture, the broader culture, as far as sexuality and what is acceptable and what is normalized and all of that. And as we see that, it's very easy to view those people with contempt in our hearts. And it's very, very easy to think ill of those who hold unbiblical or even anti-biblical beliefs. But I think the example of Christ here is very helpful in tweaking our assessment of those who are outside of Christ. Jesus views this multitude with compassion. That is his initial response to these people because they're a sheep without a shepherd. He sees the desperate plight they are in. And I think that's exactly how you and I need to think about those who are around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, people that we see in the broader culture. And we need to think about them in that way because they really are in a desperate plight. They don't even know it most of the time. But think about the circumstance and the situation most of those people are in. They're pursuing or they're enslaved even to their own passions and their own desires. They're on a crash course for eternity without the Lord in hell. And we need to view them the way Christ would view them with compassion as those who don't even know what they need. They're a sheep without a shepherd. So let's ask the Lord to give us his perspective and lose the contempt that is so often there in our hearts toward those outside of Christ. If we're going to have an impact in the new year in this community, we have to view unbelievers with this compassion here. Doesn't mean going soft on sin, not at all. But it means understanding the wreckage that sin causes in people's lives And begging the Lord to free them from that and sharing the Lord with them so that they can be freed from that. And when we have the compassion that we need, that compassion will cause us to direct them to the one who can meet every need. And that's exactly what the disciples should have done here. That's what Christ is trying to teach them. And that brings us to the last way that Jesus demonstrates that he is the good shepherd. He supplies the provision. He sees the problem. He sharpens our perspective on those who need a savior. And then ultimately he supplies. He gives what is needed. 
So when you finish verse 38 there, look back at 38. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. So when you finish this verse, you're sort of expecting a response from Jesus. I mean, the disciples have just talked. It's been a conversation. So it sort of falls back on his shoulders at this point. What is he going to do in response to five loaves and two fishes and lots and lots of people out there? They return with this very small amount. It's not enough food to feed all of them. And then verse 39 keeps our attention still focused on Christ. Look at the pronoun switch here. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Now Jesus becomes the center. He's the one orchestrating what's going to happen next. And it's interesting to note here, I just want to draw your attention to this. Where does he tell them to sit down? On the green grass. Now, where were they? They're in the middle of a wilderness. I mean, Mark has gone at length to explain they are in a desolate place. So there must have been some green grass around. So why does Mark include that detail? I don't think it's accidental. I can't help but think that he's maybe trying to tie the work of Christ to this passage. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Regardless, they sit down by groups in verse 40. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And then Jesus takes the loaves and fishes and look at verse 41. And taking the five loaves, the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves and gave them to to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Now, as you're looking at verse 41, I want you to notice there are some some action words, some verbs that Jesus does here with the bread, all right? He takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives, okay? Those are significant words, and they come in that order intentionally. That is not the only time that Jesus is breaking bread in the gospel of Mark and those words come in that order. You don't have to answer out loud, but think about what the other time might be in the gospel of Mark. When would Jesus have done that with bread? Mark 14, 22, at the last supper. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it, And gave it to them. It's the exact same order of words. And he said, take, this is my body. And we'll talk about the significance of that connection. Because I don't think it's accidental in just a moment. But back in Mark 6, in verse 41... Jesus gives the bread and the fishes to the disciples. They begin to pass it out. The end of verse 41, he says, they divided the two fish among them all. Now, you know this story, so you know that everybody is fed here and receives their food. This is the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And this is just a fantastic miracle. I have no idea how the mechanics of this worked. It's fun to think about it, though. I mean, what would it have been like to be sitting there and see these five loaves and two fishes and Jesus prays over them, blesses them, and starts to break the bread and there's more bread, and there's more bread. And I, I don't know how this happened, and obviously Mark doesn't explain it to us, but it's an amazing circumstance. 
Regardless of how it happened, here's the bottom line. Look at verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. Jesus sees this group of people as a a group of sheep without a shepherd in the middle of the wilderness late in the afternoon, and he provides exactly what they need. He gives them for their physical needs. But here's the connection, I think, to Mark 14, where Christ institutes the Lord's Supper. And here's why noticing those four verbs and the connection I think Mark is making here is so important. It's what Jesus says at the end of this verse. Take this bread, this is my body. Now listen to John 6. Again, this happens right after the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And the point of all this is that Jesus certainly provides for the physical needs of this group of people. But the bigger picture is that through the sacrifice of his own body, he provides for their spiritual needs as well. You and I certainly have spiritual needs. And the only place that we can go to for satisfaction and provision of those needs is the bread of life. Which is Jesus Christ. He provides our greatest need, forgiveness, salvation. He does all that through his work on the cross. But you and I have to continually go back to the bread of life, not for salvation, but for ongoing fellowship and for sustenance and for nourishment of our spiritual lives. We have to go back to the bread of life and feed on him in relationship with him through faith. So ask yourself this morning, are you and I going to Christ to be satisfied with his love and his grace? And that's what happened in verse 42. They all ate and were satisfied. I had to ask myself this as I was thinking this through this week. Do I pursue those times of rest And fellowship with the Lord on a continual basis so that my mission for the Lord is empowered. Do you seek him? Not just to check a to-do item off of your list for the day. Oh good, I read my Bible today. I prayed today. Not just to avoid feeling guilty because you haven't read the Bible in a few days. When was the last time that you and I just set aside some time to be with this, to feed off of him in close relationship with him? When is the last time that we went to him in order to pursue satisfaction in him? I want to read you a passage of scripture that I, I think describes this longing that we should have. Psalm 63 Verses 1 to 8. You can follow along if you want, but I want you to listen to the desperation and the longing that David explains here in Psalm 63. Verse 1. Oh God, 
You are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And what happens when we seek the Lord like this, the way David describes in Psalm 63? What happens when we do that? Mark 6, verse 43. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. What happens when we pursue the Lord with longing to be in relationship with him, in close communion with him, with him as the bread of life that we know we need every single day? What happens? He doesn't just eke us by spiritually. He doesn't just give us enough. He provides in extravagant abundance for our needs. It's amazing here that as Jesus is breaking the bread and serving the fish, he doesn't just stop when all the people have been fed. I mean, he could have done that, right? Like he could have just given enough for everybody to eat. But what happens? They have 12 giant baskets full left over. And I don't think that's coincidental. 12 disciples who needed instruction in the Savior's provision for them and in viewing this crowd as sheep without a shepherd and 12 baskets left over, one for each of the disciples. I don't think that's coincidental. Jesus provides way more than everyone needs. He went above and beyond meeting everyone's needs to a shocking abundance What would they even do with these baskets? It's not like they could carry them somewhere. They're out in the middle of the wilderness, but Christ provides and provides and gives and gives. And that's exactly how he is with us. That's exactly what he promises to do for you and I through the work of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. And so the challenge for us is, Are we seeking to be with him and feed on him as the bread of life? Do you and I see Christ as absolutely essential to my daily life? I need bread to eat. I need food so that I can keep on going each day. And I need Jesus every single day in the same way. And all of that goes back to our mission for him. We want to go out on mission for him, but we need the time of feeding on him so that we can engage in our mission. And then the mission sends us back to Christ for more and more sustenance. And that's the way the Christian life is supposed to work. And I hope that's what we'll be engaged in this week. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this reminder that you are abounding in your goodness. It's above and beyond what we could ever hope or think. You provide for us physically, as we've seen even this week, as we've eaten together. 
around the Thanksgiving table, but you provide for us spiritually. You give us grace. You give us your Holy Spirit. You give us the righteousness of Christ. You give above and beyond what we could ever think. And so we thank you for this passage, for the demonstration of your goodness and the promise that when we trust you and come to you, we will be satisfied of every need that we have. Maybe not in the way we think it should happen, but in your goodness and your provision, you give exactly what we need, Lord. And so we thank you for that. Help us to dwell on these things and to come to you for communion and sustenance even this coming week, Lord. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for what he's done. In his name we pray. Amen.